The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Peter 3, 8-16. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Now will you pray with me? Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. Good morning. My name is Lee Eric Fesco. I'm the Director of Discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Church. I want to thank you for, for having me this morning, and I want to extend a thanks to uh, Stacy for having me uh, uh, fill in for him. He's in his final day of quarantine, so he should be uh, back uh, in your midst very soon. Uh, but I don't know if you've heard, but we have uh, an election here that is fast approaching in the United States. Perhaps you've heard. Uh, in fact, many of you have probably already cast your vote through early voting procedures. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there seems to be some tension surrounding the election. And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure that's terribly unusual. In fact, in terms of subject matter and discussion in general, the election or politics are at the top of the list of, of subject matter that we're supposed to avoid in conversation. If you're, if you're hosting a gathering or a dinner of some kind, you're always told, stay away from two topics. 
What, the, what are those two topics? You've probably always heard this before. Religion and politics. Well, if you have a distaste for either of those subjects, I've got some bad news for you today. So here we are as a gathered church. Spoiler alert, we're going to be talking about some things of a religious nature. And uh, we're about to begin this new three-week series on politics. What in the world are we thinking? It's a double whammy. Why do you suppose, generally speaking, we have such a distaste for having discussions on topics like politics? Why do you suppose many of us actively avoid discussion on politics? I have a theory. I think somewhere at its root, it has something to do with fear. What is it that we fear when we begin to engage in a topic like politics? Well, there's a number of pitfalls we could find ourselves stuck in. If you're like me, uh, you're someone that likes to be liked. I want to be liked. I don't think that's terribly unusual for for a lot of us. And, And if I say the wrong thing, how does that affect the prospects of you liking me? It might hurt them. So maybe I just shouldn't say anything at all. Or how about this? The subject of politics comes up and someone asks me to state my position on something. And and what if I can't state my position well? What if it exposes my ignorance on a certain matter or a complicated matter? Maybe it's best that I just don't say anything at all. I, I don't want you to think of me in that manner. I don't want you to reject me. Or what if it's this? Sometimes we have a tendency to avoid talking about things that we dread. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first son, I I was always amazed how there was always someone that wanted to describe to her the horrors of childbirth. I never understood that. Not not the joy that awaited her about bringing a human into the world, but but the torture that she was about to go through and how your life is just going to change. And my, my wife's general response to that was, could we just not maybe focus on that? What's the world going to look like after November 3rd? Could we just, could we just not? Could we just not talk about that? Do you see how, how fear can be at the root for, of, our, of our distaste for the topic of politics? And maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the Bible has a lot to say about fear. In fact, the passage that was just read for you a moment ago out of 1 Peter tells us a lot about fear The book of 1 Peter, much like many of the books in the New Testament, uh, is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a a diverse group of Christians that was living in, at the time, was an area firmly under Roman rule. And do you know what the main theme of this letter is? Peter is telling us, Peter is telling this church, hang on, hold on. It's about to get rough. It's about to get really, really rough. You see, they weren't on the verge of facing an election with an unfavorable result, whoever wins. They were were on the verge of facing suffering and persecution, the likes of which most of us have never seen. You see, at the time of this writing, there was an emperor over the Roman kingdom named Nero. And Nero's attitude toward the church, hostile, is a tremendous understatement. So when the church faces this kind of fear, when the church faces this kind of rejection, might it inform us? Might it inform us of of, of how we are to face whatever fear that confronts us? Might it inform us on, on how we're to behave towards those who stand against us, even if the person is a brother or sister in Christ? How does the apostle answer this question? He says this, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, in a humble mind. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. How do we do that? How do we go about that? How in the world do we do that in such a contentious age? Well, first things first. 
We need to understand something of, of who we are. First, we need to understand something of who we are. And second, we need to understand something of who he is, who Jesus is. And if we understand something of who we are and something of who he is, maybe that can change the way we actually act, the way we interact with one another. Who we are, who he is, and how we act. That's what we want to talk about today. Whenever my family and I go somewhere on vacation, my kids always have a very specific request of me, and that is please find somewhere that has a pool, preferably indoor, so if it rains or shines, they have access to that, and a hot tub. Must have both, pool and hot tub. It's not a good vacation unless we have both. Well, we stayed somewhere recently that offered both those amenities, but uh, much to my surprise, the nicest offering that they had in regards to a pool and hot tub was restricted to adults only. How do you suppose my kids reacted to that? I thought we lived in a free country, is what they said, right? What was my reaction? Adult-only pool. When every other element of our vacation surrounded and focused on the entertainment of our children, an adult-only pool sounded pretty good, right? What do you think my reaction would have been when I was their age? Pretty similar to theirs now. What are we, animals? Why can't they let us in? What's up, right? What do you suppose this reveals? The Apostle Paul teaches us in the first chapter of Romans that the consequence of sin in rejecting what God has revealed to us is that our minds are darkened. Sin clouds the mind. It impairs our ability to think clearly. We're still left after the fall with the capacity to reason. For instance, my mind can still inform me with a great deal of certainty that you can't play billiards with bowling balls. It's impossible. I can say that with a high degree of certainty, yet at the same time, each one of us is given to making mistakes in our thinking. And even as I say those words, there's some of you right now trying to imagine how big of a table you'd have to construct and think, no, I can, I can play billiards with bowling balls. You just need a bigger table, right? So, so things like sickness, disease, and death, these are all products of the fall. The mind and its ability to think and reason is impacted by the fall as well, and it limits us. Just like my bias when I think about that adult-only pool. I'm the same human I was when I was my kid's age, but an adult-only pool now impacts me differently as I get older. Our natural disposition affected by sin is to see life first through our own eyes. When you read the account of the fall of mankind, you ever notice their, their reactions as the Lord begins to question them? Why did you eat the fruit? Not me. <laughs> It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me, Lord. And Eve's response, well, it wasn't technically my fault either. It was the serpent. And by extension, you created the serpent, Lord, did you not? See, it's all a very self-focused defense. All a very self-centered defense. Self-serving. I recently received some bad news about a friend. Uh, I had fallen out of touch with this friend over the last several years, but um, I used to look up with this friend a great deal. In fact, I so admired the way he conducted himself professionally that, that I often wished that I was him. I often wished that I had uh, his abilities, and I really had a great deal of admiration for him. Well, I discovered recently that he'd gotten into some trouble. He'd engaged in some inexcusable conduct, and, and when I heard the news, I was devastated. After hearing the news, I said to my wife, can you believe that? Can you believe it? I'm dumbfounded. Did you, did you ever think he was capable of something like that? And my wife looked at me with, with eyes that didn't convince me that she agreed with what I was saying. And I said to her, what? Did you know something? 
And she explained to me how she had observed certain behaviors and some things that he did, some things that he said that were clear warning signs. And as she detailed these things, I thought to myself, you know, you're right. How, how did I miss that? How did I miss these things? Do you know why I didn't see those warning signs? Because I didn't want to see them. I didn't want to see them. Because, because of sin, I have this tendency to see life through eyes that most benefit me. Ever since sin entered the world, our impulse is not to say, hey, wait, how might I be wrong here? How, how might I not be seeing this correctly? We don't do that first because of sin. Have you ever wondered why those of us who claim to be Christians have such, a wi- have such widely varied beliefs? And I mean both politically and theologically. We, well, we all start with the same information. We all start with the same word of God, yet we can arrive at such very different conclusions. Why is that? Is the Bible really that unclear? No, you see, the Bible's not the problem. The problem is that we still live with the effects of the fall in our minds. All of our minds, all of us, we suffer from what theologians call the noetic effects of sin. And what that means is, like it or not, I approach everything in in life. I approach everything in life and everything in it with certain biases. I tend to see life through my own eyes and carry with me a tendency to want to interpret, interpret the things the way that most benefits me. And what that means is even when that I'm certain that I'm right, even when I'm certain that I'm right, I might be wrong. Sin clouds the mind and everyone, every single person who has ever walked the earth is given to making these types of errors. Errors that are influenced by emotion and personal bias. Every single person carries with them these effects of sin. Everyone, everyone who's ever walked the earth, except for one person except for one person, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The word made flesh. When Jesus spoke, he was able to speak without being influenced by the clouding nature of sin. His position, his thoughts were unaffected by sin. But when you and I hear those words, sin takes its toll. So what do we do? Yes, we need to double our focus on on his words, certainly. So, so, So that's something about you and me. All right, we said that's our first point. We want to discuss something about who we are. You and I suffer from the noetic effects of sin. We see everything in life with bias, like it or not. And, and, and what about who he is? What does the Bible tell us about who Jesus is? The scriptures tell us, Hebrews 4.15, the author of Hebrews tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived as a man, not like a man. Jesus lived as a man, fully God, fully man. He walked this earth, yet did so without giving into that clouding nature of sin. The apostle Peter is asking us to live our lives, to conduct ourselves in such a way that reflects the nature of Christ. He tells us, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And again, these are commands the apostle is giving to the church who is about to face opposition that some of us may never be able to comprehend. And he's saying, as you face this opposition, as you face this kind of suffering and persecution, here's what you have to remember. Please remember, the, uh, please remember this. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So, so how do we apply this? How do we apply this to the political season that we're in right now? Just as I said before, At the root of our tension, at the root of this unsettling outlook is a spirit of fear. 
We fear the outcome. We fear this is something that will divide us as a nation. We fear this is something that may divide us as a church. Don't you think the early church may have have had many of these same fears? Don't you think there were politics at play here? How do we behave toward an emperor who wants to destroy us? Do we fight back? Do we run? Do we comply with what they, with what they ask? Don't you think that they, these were questions that, that came up? And do you think that they always agreed all the time on how best to, to, to face and deal with, with what was before them? Peter's command to them, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You see, as Peter tells the church these things, please don't think that he was just picking some traits at random. He was looking at Christ. As Edmund Clowney wrote, he said, like the fingers of the hand, they radiate from one center and work together. The key to them all is the love of grace. They reflect the grace, love, and compassion of Jesus Christ. Do you see how how profound this is? You and I, like it or not, we approach everything, including especially politics, with bias. You and I, like it or not, we approach everything with bias. Jesus was one without sinful bias. So how do we live in such a way where we are less affected by our own bias? We anchor ourselves. We anchor ourselves to the truth of Christ. We anchor ourselves to the one who has no sinful bias. How do Christians find unity? How do Christians display unity, even when we don't agree on, on issues of, of justice, race, taxes, and, and health care? Christians find and display unity in their understanding of the gospel. Christians find and display unity in the understanding of the, uh, of the gospel. This is why Peter points us to the character of Christ, which is not unlike what, what uh, the apostle Paul told us in Philippians 2. He said, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. What is your mindset during this political season? What is the spirit who lives within you pushing you towards? It's pushing towards the character of Christ. So the apostle says this, Philippians 2, 5 and following, and I'm using this verse a lot in this season. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, what was rightfully his, what rightfully belonged to Christ, the position that he had rightful claim to, one of power, authority, glory, honor, praise, and adoration, he had those things. Those things were his. What did he do with those things? He willingly set them aside. For what purpose? To become a servant. Our willingness, listen to this, our willingness to submit ourselves to one another, to become servants, is what has the power to undercut anything else we don't see eye to eye on. Before I got married, if you would have asked me who my best friend was, I would have told you it was my brother. We both served as best man at one another's weddings. But you know, if you would have looked back on many of the days of our youth, I think you would have seen what could only be described as as rivalry. We were rivals. And maybe even extreme behavior that extended beyond that. I remember instances where we had actual fist fights. We came to blows with one another. I remember instances where we uh, um, got to the point of literally trying to spit on each other. And it wasn't a game. 
I remember name calling, many of which I would be embarrassed to say today, especially knowing my kids will hear this. I remember yelling, lots of yelling. And I remember a great unwillingness to share what's mine is mine and what's yours probably should be mine too. But eventually there was a turning point. And I remember quite vividly when that turning point was. How do you go from bitter rivals to best friends? I believe I was in the seventh grade and my brother would have been in ninth. He was given an assignment to write an essay simply titled, My Best Friend. Do you know who he cited as his best friend? Much to my surprise, it was me. And I wasn't quite sure why he picked me. Perhaps it was the realization, good or bad, we probably had spent more time together, more so than any other friend either of us had. Perhaps it was the understanding that whenever or wherever my parents had to uproot ourselves as a family, we always had at least one person who would always consistently be there. I remember my mom made him read the essay to me once he finished it. And I remember it brought me to tears. It broke me. Now, don't get me wrong, some of that behavior that I described before um, happened after that essay was written. But the essay was the line in the sand. Come what may, fight, spitting, yelling, acts of violence, you're my brother. You're my brother and you're my best friend and nothing in the world is going to change that. One act whereby my brother set aside every argument we ever had, one act where he emptied himself of whatever rightful claim that he had, that changed everything. In the same manner, church, you and I, whatever our differences, are united by something far greater, an act of selflessness whereby our Savior set aside his rightful claims for the sake of his brothers and sisters. And in so doing, do you see what he gained? Not just a friend for life, though he is that, but he reconciled us to God Almighty. He repaired a hopelessly fractured relationship and brought it to a place of hopeful certainty. Doesn't that sound like something we could use right about now? What differences do you and I have with one another? Can we examine them first through our brother's eyes, set aside our rightful claims, and put ourselves in the place of a servant? That's what Christ did. That's what Christ did for us. When we understand this, when we, when we can grasp this, it fundamentally changes who we are. It changes how we act. This is, our, this is our third point. When we have this understanding of the grace that's been extended to us and carry with us a view of what awaits us, it fundamentally changes us. We see the world with a new set of eyes and they're not our own. What sort of questions are you asking yourself in this political season? What if my taxes go up? What if the environment takes a hit? What, what if democracy goes away? Please remember that this instruction Peter gives was given to a church who were about to face the very real, real prospect of losing their lives. Yet Peter's instruction remains the same. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. And he continues, suffer for the sake of righteousness. Have no fear nor be troubled. Be willing to suffer for good. Why? Why? Because you know the hope that awaits you. You know the power of the resurrected Christ, which is the guarantee that whatever befalls you, it can't overcome the grace that's been given to you. So that when the world sees you, so that when the world watches you, church, you present a gentle and respectful defense for this hope that's in you, even when you're slandered. Don't you see? The world needs to see this. The world desperately needs to see this. The, the, the Christian has a hope that transcends any struggle or suffering that the world may present us. 
Peter, in our passage today, is speaking of suffering for the sake of Christ. And in the process, he's arming Christians against attacks and showing them how the very circumstances they will face, persecution, torture, separation from family, and yes, even death, can be turned into opportunities to put the hope we have within us on display. Whatever the circumstances. Consider Peter himself. Do you remember the actions of this disciple? This is the same one who when the temple guards tried to arrest Jesus, he took out a sword and made a feeble attempt to protect the political Messiah he had dreamed up for himself. And what does Jesus say? It doesn't happen like this, Peter. Put your sword away. It happens the opposite of how you think it should happen. It's a paradox, Peter. There's life in my death. There is hope in suffering. There's gain and loss. Maybe we should put our swords down too. This is the same Peter who soon thereafter denied Christ three times for fear of what would happen to him next. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. It's the same guy, but this one, the one who writes this letter, understands the truth of the resurrection. He now understands the certainty of the gospel and what awaits him. And then this Peter, the same disciple who would soon be the accused, He would no longer hide by the fire watching from a distance denying the Savior. He would soon stand trial before the same tribunal that examined Jesus. And this time he refuses to be silent. We must obey God rather than men, he testifies. The one who understands the reality of Christ and the hope that lies within them is the one who will undergo a fundamental change to reflect the character of Christ back to him. They're the ones that understand Nothing is more important than this. You see, the antidote to the fear of anything is the awareness of the glory of the Lord himself. I want to leave you with one final picture. One last mental image that I would pray would be pinned to the forefront of your minds this political season, and that is the image of the faithful saint Stephen, who we meet in the sixth chapter of Acts. When we meet Stephen we see that he had opponents too. His opponents accused him of blasphemy. They lied against him and set him up. They assembled a kangaroo court to try and and sentence him to death. So you might say he was misunderstood and misrepresented politically. You see, there are a number of ways that Stephen could object here. But how did he handle it? Yes, he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. In Acts chapter 7, you can read his testimony, which is probably the most detailed and concise history in Scripture of Israel and God's relationship with Israel. He gave them the gospel. He gave them the thing that transcends politics. Yes, he included reminders to the court that their rebellion and idolatry, as well as their failure as a a chosen people of God, and, and their failure to recognize Jesus and Messiah, he told them all those things. He didn't sacrifice truth. He spoke truth, understanding that sin is part of our understanding of the gospel. And how effective was Stephen's speech? Arguably the best testimony in the New Testament. Well, he was stoned to death. You might say he lost this debate. But with his dying breath, he echoed the words of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross and made a plea for the very ones hurling stones at him. Lord, Do not hold this against them, he prayed. As they threw stones at him. Stephen, full of grace, full of truth. But I also want to leave you with one other impression. One other impression on your mind from this account. 
we can read in the, in the conclusion of Mark's gospel that, that Jesus was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. There's a symbolic element to that description. To be seated at the right hand of God is a position of authority. You see, at the right hand of God is a place of authority where he rules. He sits at his throne in his rightful place. The king sits at his throne. However, as they raised their stones to Stephen and launched them at him one by one, we're told that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The heavenly advocate stands in the presence of his father to welcome his first martyr. A theologian by the name of F.F. Bruce said, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Christ stands for you. He stands before his father and he lives to make intercession for you. That's what this table is telling us. It's testifying what we're about to to approach here. This is what awaits you, friend. What, What better than this? What's better than this? this it's, it's our understanding of this. When we understand this, when we, when we approach everything in, this, in, in life with this understanding, it transcends anything else that stands before us. May the church of God know this, live it, and put it on display for the world that desperately needs to hear it and see it. Would you please pray with me? Our dear God in heaven, we, we need you. We need you more than anything else in the world. We need you. Though we still wrestle with sin, we thank you that you've not left us without hope. You gave us your son. Father, help us all to repent. Help us all to reorient our thoughts and our actions so that they reflect the reality of what awaits us. And help us to show this to our neighbors, our city, and our world. Not for our sake, but for the glory of your name. It's in the name of Christ that we pray this. Amen.